Amen. Well, I'm going to get right into it today. Um, last week, Matt had mentioned that there was a curriculum that was being voted on. Uh, I don't know if any of you have looked into that in Illinois, but it did pass, um, or, or the rules of it were passed. And so at first, that really broke my heart. And I want to read to you a scripture because this is what I was kind of reminded of. It's in Mark verse 13, or chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. It says, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given in you, or whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And listen to this scripture. It says, Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And so that last part of that scripture, Jesus is talking about the end times here. And I always heard growing up that we're in the last days, we're in the end times. But that scripture right there was always like, man, I just don't see it. I don't see, like, maybe there's a few weirdos out there that would actually turn in their parents to death. But I don't see that being something that's so widespread that Jesus would talk about in Scripture. But when I started reading what these rules were and what they were trying to do, what it says, if it actually goes through, all of a sudden it was like, man, I can see how down the road, that's not such a far-fetched idea. And so I bring this up because... The Bible tells us that as parents, we're to train up children in the way they should go. But unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that's not really who's training our children. Schools are training our children. Social media are training our children. Other children are training our children, and that's terrifying. And so I just want to encourage you, parents, because, you know, this is not just an attack against our children, which it is. It's an attack against the Christian teachers that are in our schools because this is set up to really push them out. Um, and, then, and then our school systems, what does that look like when the actual voice of God and the Holy Spirit that we carry in us, because we're the temple of God, all of that is removed. Not to mention there's going to be a lot of teachers that are going to have to choose between feeding their families and their faith. And that's a really big deal. And so I just want to ask you to be in prayer for our nation, my goodness, be in prayer for our state, be in prayer for our kids. Because there was no mistake that a year and a half ago that God said that I want you, Life Church X, to go after the younger generation. He knew what was coming. He knew what was happening. And I know this is not the only church that he's spoken that to. And so there are churches and there are places that say we are going to stand up against this and we are going to fight. But we need revival. We need revival in our land. Amen. Amen. And I'm confident that when I say that in a church like this, that that is the response that we will get. But I've been reading through the minor prophets here lately and, and through some of the revivals that have happened in America and what it looked like before revival happened. And, and honestly, I don't think we know what we are saying when we say we're ready for revival. Because I don't think the church looks like it's ready for revival. And so today what I want to talk to you about is what precedes revival. What does it look like in the land? What does it look like in the church? What is God calling his people to do to prepare for revival? And so let's go 
soon as I, sorry, I didn't switch my notes. Um, they are loud down there. Um, so in my research, this is, there's a list of things that I found that I feel like even though every revival is unique to the land, every revival um, speaks to that generation and that time and what's going on, there are some commonalities that you can find in what it looks like in society before revival. And so, first of all, it's a time of darkness in society. Evil is abounding in society, and morality was very low and lowering. Sound familiar? There was hopelessness in people's hearts. In fact, in one revival, there was a pastor that started with one man that looked around, and he said that he would see on the faces of everybody just an anxiousness and a hopelessness. And that's how God spoke to him, because he was looking at people's faces. And so hopelessness abounds in society, and it seems to be everywhere. There's this doom and gloom and anxiety and worry that seems to kind of be spoken of everywhere. And if this has been... 2020, a year of like fear and anxiety, I think it's the worst that I've certainly ever known nationwide and across the world. There's also a coldness in churches, just kind of a general lack of the warmth of God, of the love of God, people feeling welcome, people are feeling more judged than they are welcome. And then there is too much knowledge and too little power. And I think of everything, that really what speaks to our day right now. We think we know everything, but there's not really a whole lot of power to really change a life going on. And so when I was reading this, I just wanted to ask you, where do you think we are in society? Do you think that this sounds like where we are? Do you feel like our society is ready for revival? Because we can desire it and we can want it, but if it's not, if, if it's not time for revival then God's not going to pour his spirit out in that way. But the more that I look into this, the more I see, like, it really lines up with a lot of these times from the minor prophets to the 1800s, even into the 90s, when God was pouring out his spirit and reviving his people. But here's what it looks like for the people of God, that their hearts are hungry for more of God. And I do feel like, this has kind of been a time where more and more people are like, if it, we can't do it on our own, we just have to have God. Like we're beyond our reasoning, like if this person or that person or this political party or that political party, you know, does something, we kind of like, I think it's beyond everybody. We just need God. There's also a hunger for righteousness. Church, are we fed up with immorality? Are we done? Are we going to stop allowing it to just be okay? Because if we're not there, then we're not ready. And then there has to be a movement of prayer and repentance. If you were raised in a church, this probably isn't anything new. Especially in a, in a spirit-filled church, you're probably like, yeah, exactly, I knew that. But what stood out to me in my research is that what that really looks like. What does it look like to be hungry for more of God? What does it look like to hunger for righteousness in a true movement of prayer and repentance? And so before we get into this today, let's pray. Dear Father God, I thank you for what you're saying. You've been speaking something and your voice is becoming louder, Lord God. 
and your, and your message is becoming clearer in the hearts of people. And so, God, I pray that you would speak today, that you would open our hearts today to hear what you have to say, not what I have to say or any man has to say, Lord God, but we need to hear what you are saying to us personally and to your church today. Father God, open our ears, open our hearts, Lord God, move Holy Spirit in whatever way you want to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, first in that list was prayer. And Pastor Matt spoke about prayer last week, and it was the kind of prayer that doesn't relent. The kind of prayer that you say, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray until it happens. Whether it takes a couple hours, whether it takes a couple days, whether it takes a couple months, whatever it takes, I'm going to keep praying for revival. And so today I want to talk to you about the other three things, and I want to start with a hunger for more of God. In Amos chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, This is what the Lord says to Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. When we are hungry for more of God, we need to be hungry for what God is doing now. We have a tendency as a people to be like, God, this is what you looked like before, and so I'm looking for you to respond and act and be like what you did before, who you were before. And while God's the same, he's always doing something new, and it's always very specific to the moment. And so we need to be seeking God for his face. We need to be seeking God for his heart. We can't go to these other places. All these places that are mentioned in Amos were things that God did. Like Bethel was the house of God. God moved in Bethel. But he moved differently in Gilgal. And if we look for what God did somewhere else, we may miss what he's wanting to do today. And so we have to hunger for him and him alone. Psalm 63.1 says, You are God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. How much do you hunger for God? I ask myself that. How much do I thirst for God? Do I feel like if I don't get in the presence of God that I'm just longing for him? Do I feel like I'm missing him? Like something is, is like I'm parched and if I don't get more of him, then, then I'm going to fade away? Is that where we are, church? Because that's what it looks like to hunger for God. So I want to ask, where is your hunger meter? If you rated yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, how hungry are you for God? Because this convicted me. I was like, man, I, I don't know that every day I feel like that. I don't know that if I go a day and something keeps me from getting on my face before God that I'm like, oh my goodness, my whole day is ruined. I feel like it's kind of like, oh, tomorrow. And so I've been praying, God, increase my hunger meter. Increase my hunger. I want to be feeling like David did where he's like, if I don't get in the presence of God every day, then I am so parched and so dry that I can't think of anything else other than getting in the presence of God, because that's what it's going to take for revival in our land. The next one is a hunger for righteousness. We hunger for righteousness, which is right standing with God. And if you accept Jesus into your heart, that is solved. We are in 
right standing with God by the blood of Jesus. But we should also hunger for right living, for living a life that is holy and set apart. The Bible tells us that because he is holy, we should be holy, that our ways should be holy, that our actions should be holy, that we should be not okay with not being holy. And we're people, and we make mistakes, and God knows that. And that's why the blood of Jesus was for the day of salvation and all through the rest of our lives. But the problem is when we're okay with it. When God convicts us and we're like, eh, grace. Pastor Rick talked a lot about that. We can't go so far into grace to where it allows us to live a life of sin and be okay with it. We have to allow our hearts to be convicted of the things that we do wrong and allow it to move us. We need to be like Isaiah was where when he stood before God, he's like, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. To where it moves us to make a difference in our life. Philippians 3 verses 12 through 14, Paul says, it's not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so this scripture refers to a lot of things, but one of the things it certainly refers to is us pressing into righteousness. It should be an active thing that we are doing. It's not a passive thing. We should be moving toward righteousness, always looking to live a life that is righteous and holy before God. We have to start with ourselves. Because for me too, it's easy to say, I want righteousness in our land. Man, they need to change things in our land. They need to set things right. But it begins with me being righteous in my life, being righteous in my home with my kids, making right decisions there. Because if I, as a child of God, can't stand righteous, how do I expect anyone else to? And so we need to allow God to convict our hearts, not allow our hearts to be hardened to where we don't hear that. And the next thing is repentance, and this is kind of where I want to camp out today. Repentance is something that it seems like we really get a hold of when we're a sinner and we're coming to Jesus. But it seems like the further along we get in life, the more we're kind of okay with that and Jesus covers. And so we need to first have personal repentance. In James 5, 16, it says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the earnest prayer of a righteous person has power and produces wonderful results. And so Pastor Matt used that last week, and he talked about the earnest prayer of a righteous man. But what preceded that was confess your sins to one another. That's what makes us righteous. It's the washing away of the sins. And so we have to not truly walk in pride to where we won't do that. And so I know for me, I want to look like I have it all together sometimes. I, 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 I have, I'm a pastor, right? I mean, I'm supposed to have it all together. And I'm not supposed to make the mistakes that other people do. And I'm sure Many of you in your own space, you're a parent, you don't confess your sins to your kids, 
or whatever, whatever role you're in. But it makes it difficult for us to be open and honest and real about the things that we struggle with and the things that we're going through. But what I've learned is what I keep in the dark has power over me. But what I bring to the light loses its power. And so confessing of my sins isn't to make me look like I'm lesser than or lower than. What it is, it's to break the enemy's power off of me so he can no longer keep me in that place of unrighteousness, so that he can no longer keep that wall between me and God, and so that he can't hinder me from walking in all that I'm called to. And so we have to confess our sins to a trusted one another. We don't have to blab it to everybody. But we have to be quick to confess our sins. The longer we walk in that thing, the more power it has on us, and the harder it is to then bring it forth. Bring it forth quickly. Confess your sins to one another. I was reading about um, conviction, and the pastor said that affected sinners, truly affected sinners, before revival are inconsolable except in Christ. And that spoke to me. Like, am I inconsolable about my sin? Am I so convicted? Does it break my heart that I sin? Not to a point of condemnation, but to a point of, God, I have to get right with you. God, I have to lay that at your feet. I just can't allow it to stay in my life because it bothers me so bad because you are a holy and righteous God. And I want to walk before you in a holy and righteous way. The next thing is corporate repentance and as a church. And as a church, as the body of Christ, we, we have failed. And I don't mean in this local church or in every local church. But if we look around our world as church as a whole, we're not doing our part. Why? Because if we were, the world would not be where it is. There is power in the church. And if we were doing our part, then we would not be having curriculums passed that attack our children and our teachers and put them in a place that they're now in. In a place where now they're going to have to stand against teachers and peers and school boards if they want to walk in their faith. That's terrible. And as a church, we, we are the ones that should be standing up for them. Because we can't expect the world to stand up for them because the world is standing up for its agenda. And sadly, it's more passionate about what it wants to pass and what it wants to do than the church is about the word and truth of God. And so as a church at large, because we're all members of one body, and just like my hand affects my feet, and just like if I steal with my hand, my feet are going to suffer the punishment, what the church is doing at large affects us here, whether we are actively doing it or not. And so as a corporate body of Christ, we need to repent of our sins for not speaking up, for not being who we're called to be, for allowing the innocent to become victimized, for allowing the world to tell us that we shouldn't have a voice. Like we are the children of God. We have the truth of God. We have the only answer. Why would we not speak? Why would we not stand up? Why would we believe the lie that we're the ones to be silent? And I don't mean in a, in a mean and violent way, but I mean 
be the kind of church that we won't stop speaking, we won't sit down, we won't shut up until something changes. And that we will be on our face before God. And we won't stop speaking there. We won't stop talking to him and crying out to him there for what we know we're called to do, what we know he wants to do. Amen? In 1 John 1, sorry, I'm losing my voice. I sang in worship. It was so good, wasn't it? And I lost my voice. So you guys did a fantastic job. Um, But in 1 John 1, verse 8 through 9, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so to me, this scripture just says, like church, local church, if, if we try to say it's not our sin, it's not our problem, it's not our issue, we're doing what we should be doing, then, then we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. Because what the church is doing at large is affecting us here. And so we have to confess our sins as a body. Like God, forgive us. Forgive us for not doing our part. Forgive us, Lord God, but he is faithful and he is just if we will do that to forgive us and to heal our land. And the next thing is national repentance. As a nation, we've had the freedom to worship God. We've had the freedom of liberty to speak, even in very unhealthy ways. We've had the freedom to make money and lose money and and live our life the way we've wanted to. And unfortunately, as of late, we've done it without much gratitude or appreciation for that. And in all the nations of the world, this is still the greatest nation of the world because we still can come here today unquestioned, without any threat to worship God and to declare his truth. But that is that is being attacked. We are losing that at a rapid pace. And if we don't repent as a nation, then we are going to find ourselves in the place of some of these other countries that are in a sad, sad place. And so we need to be on our face and repent as a nation. And we need to be just pouring our heart out to God and just begging him to come and to change our land. In church, there's a promise that's in 2 Chronicles, and I know you've heard this scripture. It's verse um, 14 in chapter 7. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their, forgive their sin and heal their land. See, it can sound really daunting, like, oh man, this is the way everything is, and, and these are the laws that are being passed, and there's you know, widespread evil happening. But the power is in the hands of the church. Like, this is not out of our control. This is, this is not something that we can say, I, I can't do anything about. God, does, God never leaves his church powerless. He will never leave his church without the ability to answer through him. And if we will stand on this scripture right here, and we'll do what God says, humble ourselves starting with me, if I'll humble myself, and if I'll lead my family to humble their selves, and if we'll lead our church to humble ourselves, 
And then it continues to compound. And at Life Church, we're having a voice, and it's being amplified. Like I said in the beginning, Matt's speaking at another church. He's building relationships with lots of pastors. What God is doing is absolutely amazing through him, through this church, through what he's saying, because we're standing for a vision. And it will compound, but if it doesn't start here, then it won't continue. And so what's on my heart today is to say, church, will you stand with us? Will you stand with us for revival? Will you do your part? Because I'm committed to doing my part. I am going to press in and I'm going to hunger for more of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push whatever it is aside, whatever it is, to make sure I'm on my face before God. To make sure I am quick to repent of my sins. You may hear of some of them. Because I don't care. Because it's not about me. Because if I don't stand and I'm not willing, then how can I expect anyone else to? Will you do your part? Will you stand with us? Because the revivals that I read about, they always started with one person or a small group in one city in one place. Who says it can't be here? Who says it can't be us? Amen? Are we going to fight for our kids? Are we going to fight for our land? Because, see, when Moses went up to the mountain and the people built the golden calf, Moses didn't build it. He didn't build it, but he came down, and he loved the people that he was leading. And he cried out for them because God was going to wipe them all out. And I believe he would have started over with Moses. He could have still fulfilled his covenant by starting over with Moses. But because Moses cried out for his people, for his land, for his nation, God relented from his anger. And that's our good God. So if we'll choose to cry out for our land and for our nation, for our people, then I believe God will relent for what, what is coming based on the actions that we have chosen. Because don't be fooled and think that there isn't judgment coming if we continue to say, God, we don't want you. If we continue to say, God, get out of our schools, get out of our nation, get out of our land. Like, God is a God of grace, but he is a God of judgment. And at some point, he's going to say, that's what you chose. But if we will choose to get on our face before God and seek him and press in for revival and repent of our sins, then this promise in Chronicles will happen because God is faithful all the time to every promise he ever says. And so I want to read to you in Jonah of what repentance looks like. And this was such a beautiful picture for me. It's Jonah 3, verses 5 through 10. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that was in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then it says God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he would bring upon them. 
This is Jonah, a very imperfect prophet, that all he did with the hope of them not turning was say, hey, God's going to wipe you all out if you don't turn. But their hearts were convicted. Their hearts were convicted of what they did. And what they did is they stopped everything that interfered with them pressing into God. They were willing to do whatever it took. There was no one that said, I'm too good for that. There was no one that said, let them do it over there. They're doing it and that'll work. Everyone decided to press in and to stay there and repent and seek God until he moved in the hope that he would relent. Will we do that today? Will we move whatever it takes? So I want to ask the team to come back up. And I want to do something today, and it's a little different. I want to ask the altar team to come up. And I want to give us an opportunity to, while worship's going, for us to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And I want to ask each of you, God, show me what I need to repent of, whether it's personally, whether it's corporately as a church, whether it's nationally. I want to give you an opportunity to confess your sins to someone. It's a big deal. But if we don't take a step of faith now, we're not going to do it later. If we can't tell someone who is on their face before God, prepared to do this, we're not going to tell our friend or, or someone else in the world for sure. But if we don't start with us, if we don't start now, then we're, we're hopeless as a nation. And so just close your eyes and let God speak to you. You can come to the altar. You can come to uh, an altar call team. And just let's get our hearts right with God. Let's pray out for our church and our nation.
sure you let us know, okay? 